The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Thank you, Brother Road. I reciprocate to the very fullest. I enjoyed being in your Bible class here in the auditorium this morning. Well, we started off in a very excellent way. Had a very delicious meal with some of the members of the church. And here we are back again. I certainly appreciate your being here. And of course, especially glad to have these visitors from some other congregations with us. And tonight, when we sang the invitation hymn, if we have those present who need to answer the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is our sincere and humble prayer unto God that you may have the courage, the manhood, or the womanhood to come down one of these aisles tonight and render obedience unto the will of God. And now for a while tonight, I challenge your attention concerning the topic, It is Wonderful. And first of all, we note, it is wonderful that we can meet here in the name of the Lord and worship God Almighty in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord, once said in John 4, 23 and 24, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now Jesus stipulated two conditions here of true worship. And he did mention true worshipers. And that implies that one could be the wrong kind of a worshiper. And in order for one to worship God in an acceptable way, then he must worship God in spirit and in truth. That worship must come from the spirit, from the inner nature of man. It cannot come from just the lips out. It must come from on the inside of man. And that worship in the second place must be regulated according to the truth of God. For the simple reason that one doctrine is not as good as another and one worship is not as good as another. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. So our worship must be in truth, and our worship must come from the spirit, from the inner nature, And certainly our worship must be in reverence, in the spirit of reverence. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6 and verse 9, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the great name of God must be hallowed, and we must approach God in the very spirit of reverence. A few years ago, a good preacher friend of mine from Oklahoma and a great preacher indeed, moved to a large Texas city, it wasn't Fort Worth, to preach for a congregation there. 
and bright and early on Monday morning after his first Sunday there, he called me long distance and said, Leroy, I thought yesterday that I could have been knocked out of my seat with a feather. He said, I thought I was going to faint. I said, what happened? He said, the associate minister walked out to lead the congregation in prayer. It was a big congregation, I guess 800 people in attendance. And he said he began his prayer by saying, hi, Dad. He said, it got me. He said, if I had a sermon in me, that took it out. That took it out. <clears throat> he said, what do you think of that? I said, we have more respect for a judge in the courtroom than that. When a judge walks into the courtroom, we don't wave over there and say, hi, judgey. We say, you're honored. You're honored. And certainly there ought to be more respect for the great name of God and for the great judge of all the universe than that we exercise toward any human judge in all the world. So it is wonderful that we can meet here and show reverence and respect for the name of God and worship God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it with reverence and do it from the spirit, from the inner nature, and do it according to the everlasting truth of God. And in the next place, it is wonderful that God has given us the Holy Bible. <clears throat> this is the Bible, the book. And my friends, we need the Bible. There never has been a time in the age of civilization in which mankind has needed the Bible more than he needs it now because a great amount of darkness is beginning to engulf us because we have gotten away from the light of God's Word. We need the Bible. And we don't need it like the prisoner on death row down at Huntsville a few years ago. He was scheduled to be executed. And he had been reading his Bible almost day and night. Reading his Bible, reading his Bible, reading his Bible. And the day before the time for the execution, the reprieve came, and he had more time. It had been changed to a life sentence. And when the news came, he threw the Bible across the cell and said, I won't need you any longer. How wrong he was. How wrong he was. Because we need the holy will of God in both life and death. We need it because it is reasonable. You know, the Bible is the most reasonable book in all the world. There are those that question that statement. They wonder if the Bible is true. They wonder if it is reasonable. But I suggest to you tonight, my friends, if there is a God and there is a God, and if he has created man and he has created man, then the most reasonable thing in the world would be for him to give us the Bible, for him to communicate with us in some definite and concrete way, not just leave us here on earth wondering, 
but communicate with us in a definite way in order that we may know from whence we came how to live and where we're going. And all that is given here in the Bible. And it's easy to prove that the Bible is true because the Bible reveals facts that no human being knew at the time the Bible was written. For instance, in Luke 17 and verse 31, it says that Jesus will come in the day. Three verses below, it says that Jesus will come in the night. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, for a long, long time, that was a passage there where great numbers of people stomped their toes. They said, you see, the Bible isn't true. They said, how in the world can it be true because no man can come in the day and in the night both at the same time? Because man only learned about 500 years ago that the earth is round and that it's day on one side of the earth when it's night over on the other side. So whenever Jesus Christ comes, he's going to come in the day and come in the night. And no human being in all the world had that knowledge at that time. That was written 14 or 1,500 years before man ever dreamed of the earth being round. Well, why do we have the truth instead of the error that prevailed at that time? All because it was not written by man, it was written by the God of heaven. And thus we have truth instead of error. And then we come to 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. And speaking of the second coming of Christ, it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth and the works therein shall be burned up. Even in my lifetime, even in my high school days and college days, there were teachers who would say, the Bible is not true and said we'll prove it to you. And then they would send some boy to go out to the school ground and get some earth and bring it in and put it over a burner in the laboratory and say, now look, you see it doesn't burn. It doesn't burn. The Bible says that the earth will melt with fervent heat and pass away with a great noise. And then the teacher would make a splash out of glorified ignorance and say, you see, it just can't happen. And I say it was glorified ignorance because later man learned how to split the atoms. Man learned how to split the atoms during the lifetime of many of us sitting here tonight. And now there are those who are scared to death, afraid that some madman may start splitting some atoms and that it may cause a chain reaction and blow up the whole world and all the universe. Well, I'm not suggesting that when the end of the world comes that somebody is going to slip up on the blind side of God and pull the trigger on him. I know that's not going to happen. It's not going to end until God is ready for it to end. But what I am suggesting is this that it's not impossible for the earth to pass away with a great noise and melt with fervent heat. 
the scientists say that that is scientific. That is a scientific statement that can happen. So when man learned more and got smarter, it corroborated the word of God and what had been a stumbling block became an asset in proving that the word of God is right and true. So the Bible is true and it's wonderful that we have it because it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway and certainly we need this light because it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. And we need it because there is in it the power to save our souls. The Bible says, James 1 and verse 21, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So there is power in the word of God to save souls. There is power in the word of God to beget people, beget them again, that they might be born again. It says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So the word of God is the power to save souls in sin. And the word of God is the power to beget a soul that that soul might be born again. And this means then that the Bible is not a dead letter. There are those who are saying that it is a dead letter. That is not true. And I say that as kindly and as politely as I know how, but that is not true. Now, this paper here is dead, of course. And the ink is dead, of course. But the message here, the very message it contains is alive. It is very much alive. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 6 and verse 63. And then again the Bible says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So there is power, power in the word of God to convert the people that are lost and ruined in sin. But there are those who are wanting to insist that it is a dead letter and that it is not the power to save souls, not the power to beget souls, to be born again, and all because they have started beating the drums of Calvinism. Of wanting some power beside the word of God. For God, like a flash of lightning out of the sky, to hit the heart of the individual. For the Holy Spirit to start working on that person's soul and to convert that person's soul separate and apart from the Word of God. If it occurred that way, then everybody would be saved. Because God would not allow this power to come down and hit one and miss another. My friends, I grew up with that doctrine, and maybe some of you did too. And we fought this out years and years ago. There were those who were claiming that they got hit by the Holy Spirit, and they would pound themselves in the left chest and say, I've got it here. Well, I don't want to be impolite, but sometimes I wondered that if that feeling they had there wasn't maybe the eating of some turnip grease. 
That's right. They were depending on that to give them the assurance that they were saved. There is power, power in the word of God. That's what it says in James 1 and 21. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And then it says being born again. If you want to be a born again Christian, here's the thing to do. Receive the word of God and allow it to start working in your heart and in your life. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. And I say again tonight, that isn't nearly right. That is right. Not nearly right. That is right. That is right because that is what God has said. Now, the Bible is the inspired word of God. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Now, look what it'll do for us. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good word. For we believe in the all-sufficiency of the word of God, and God has been good to give it to us, and to give it to us for our benefit. We need the Holy Bible, and it's indeed wonderful that we have it. And so it's the world's greatest book. It has been upon the lips of countless numbers as they went down through the valley of the shadow of death. And its words stand tonight engraved upon ten million marble shafts in the silent cities of the dead. It is the blessed word of God. Do you remember when we used to go before congregations in our preaching? And I still do. Looks like though I'm about to become a carryover from a lost age. Walk out before a congregation and hold the Bible before the people and say, this is the word of God. And say, all that we require of you is what is found here in the Bible. That we have no human creed, catechism, church manual, or discipline, or confession of faith that this is all that we require of you because this is the word of God. My friends, I still consider that good preaching. I don't know how you look at it, but I still consider that good preaching that we hold before the people the idea that we have right here the inspired word of God and that this is not dead, but it is alive, and it is active, and it can cut more than any two-edged sword. Now, on September the 20th, and today is the 25th, I believe, on September the 20th, my mother had been gone past this life for one year. One year. And uh, now suppose that I get out one of the letters that she wrote a few years ago. Now that letter, that, that paper is dead. That paper is dead. That ink is dead. 
But when I open up that read that letter and read it, those words are alive. They are alive. And they breathe spirit unto me. They are alive. And that very message comes alive in my heart. And how much more is there power here in the Word of God when we open up this message and read it and allow it to have sway in our life? I say tonight, I don't appreciate any of the brethren standing before classes or audiences and talking about the Bible as a dead letter. It's not a dead letter. This is the Word of God. And Jesus said the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, my friends, it's wonderful that we have the Bible and it's also wonderful that God has given us the mind whereby we can be discerned. That we can go to the Bible and that we can read the Bible and study the Bible to know how to rightly divide it. And that we can do as the Bereans did, search the scriptures daily to see if the things that we've heard are so. That we can be discerning. The Bible says in Hebrews 5 and verse 14, having their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now that tells us that we have some good out here in the world and we have some evil out here in the world. And that's right. There's good and there's evil. There's truth and there's error. There's right and there is wrong. And we have, because of the way in which God has endowed us, the ability to exercise discernment, discerning what is right and what is wrong. My grandfather preached for 65 years. And Grandpa, on one occasion, went off to see about buying a farm. Lots of the preachers in that day owned farms and lived on farms. That's the way they made their living. And then they preached, too. Well, he drove up to this man's house that owned this farm, now, after the ordinary, cordial, and normal greetings, the man decided to take him over the place and show it to him. Pretty big farm. I think 150, 200 acres. So they left the house and went down into some bottom land. And this bottom land went up adjacent to a little river down there. And as they got down in this bottom land, quite a big lot of it. Grandpa noticed there were a lot of trees there, big trees. And he noticed on those trees there were some, some mud marks and also some grass and other debris up more than waist high, more than waist high on those trees. And Grandpa said to him, well, now does this, does this bottom land overflow? Does this river here get out of control and overflow this land through here? And the man said, oh, no, 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 no. Well, Grandpa said, what, what, what's that mud? What's that mud doing there on those trees? He said, mud? Mud? What mud? Oh, you mean that mud? Oh, he said, the hogs, they wallow here on the ground. They get muddy and they rub up against these trees. And that's what caused it. Well, they walked over the place, came back up to the house. The man said, well, now, Parson, you think you might be interested in buying my place? 
Grandpa said, no, no, really, I guess not. But I'll tell you what, I would like to get a start of those hogs. <laughs> now we have to be discerning, be discerning. Open our eyes. Don't believe everything that we hear. Let's not be suckers for everything that comes along. And that's true in the field of religion. The Bible talks about having our eyes open. And the Bible also warns us about becoming blind followers of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, then both shall fall into the ditch. So it's wonderful that we have the power of discernment. Now it's also wonderful that God loves us all and wants us to be saved. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. And again, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 verses 3 and 4. Now there we have it. God wants everybody to be saved. And as we pointed out this morning, God so loved the world, all the world, he gave his only begotten son. And now God has extended his grace unto all of us. It says in Titus 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now, do we really understand that? Now, did that register... Maybe we ought to read that again in view of some things that are going on in our own brotherhood. Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Not just a few. Unto all men. And then what else does it say? Teaching. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching, teaching us. So God's grace has come in the form of teaching. And if you want to be saved by the grace of God, then be saved by the teaching that God has given. God's grace has given the teaching. And we're saved by grace when we accept the teaching of God. Now, a few months ago, maybe the first part of this year or the last part of this last year, three of our brethren put out a book. And in that book, these three brethren have made this statement. Churches of Christ in those years, speaking of years gone by, and they're too young to know what happened back then. They don't know. They didn't live at that time in which they could investigate and talk with men who were, who were living back way before the century ended. They don't know. But they make this statement, churches of Christ in those years neglected the themes of grace and love. How do they know? They say the churches of Christ neglect, neglected the themes of, of grace and love and preached instead 
a rigorous and demanding gospel of duty, self-reliance, and law. No, the preachers back then did not neglect the topics of grace and love. The trouble is these men, and I say this just as kindly and as lovingly as I know, I don't question their sincerity or the honesty, but evidently they don't know how the grace of God saves and how the love of God saves. And so the preachers back at that time certainly preached the grace of God, but they preached how the grace of God saves. Now, if the grace of God alone would save, everybody would be saved. For it says in Titus 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. So you could stand before a congregation and you could talk forever about the grace of God. But unless you show the people what that grace is, how that grace has come, and what they must do to appropriate that grace, then you have not put them on the right track to be saved, and to go to heaven. Now, we're saved by grace, just like Noah was saved by grace. How was Noah saved by grace? Well, he was saved by grace. The Bible says in Genesis 6 and verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So certainly, Noah was saved by grace, but how was he saved by grace? Was he saved by grace alone? Well, of course he wasn't saved by grace alone. How was he saved? Well, in Hebrews 11 and verse 7 it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Now, in Genesis 6 and 8, we are told what God did. God extended grace. In Hebrews 11 and 7, we are told what Noah did, and that is he believed and he obeyed by faith. Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as seen, moved with fear, that is he obeyed. So Noah was saved by the grace of God, but he was also saved by faith and by obedience. That's how we're saved by grace. And so today we are hearing so, so, so much uh, teaching about grace. Grace, that we've neglected grace. And yet they don't tell the people how grace is. So much teaching on the love of God. But we are not told how the love of God saves. So the preachers back then certainly, certainly preached on grace, but they knew how to preach on grace. They knew that they needed to preach on grace and help the people to be saved by grace, just like Noah was saved by grace. And then these men make this statement, and instead, they preached a rigorous and demanding gospel of duty, self-reliance, and law. I hate to see these old pioneer preachers who have been sleeping out here in hallowed graves for a long, long time start getting the brunt of some of these young preachers who don't know 
what they are talking about. And if it hadn't been for those old pioneer preachers, they wouldn't have a pulpit in which to stand today. They wouldn't have a classroom in which to teach. And the very least they could do would be to be grateful, to be grateful for, for what was done. Because those are the men that brought the church to where it is today. Well, let's look at this thing. Preached instead a rigorous and demanding gospel. Well, rigorous means, of course, strict. Strict and demanding gospel. Let's look at this. Let's see how strict, how rigorous, and how demanding it is. John 8 and verse 24. Jesus said, Except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. That's pretty strict, isn't it? That's pretty rigorous, isn't it? That's pretty demanding. Well, who gave it? Jesus Christ? Well, these men can't cancel that out. They can't cancel that out by just talking about the grace of God and the love of God. It still remains a part of the will of good. And then again Jesus said in Luke 13 and 3, Nay, I say unto you that except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's pretty demanding, isn't it? That's pretty rigorous, pretty strict. But Jesus did it. And then we have Matthew 10 and 33. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. That's rather strict and demanding too, isn't it? But who gave it? Jesus Christ gave it. And then Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9 that Jesus will come in flaming fire and will take vengeance upon them that know not God and upon them that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty rigorous, isn't it? That's pretty demanding. Frankly, my friends, while I find Paul appealing, I find those guys appalling. And you can put that in your notes. While I find Paul appealing, I find them appalling because it's contrary to the plan that God has given to save a world that is bankrupt and on the road to the wrong place. Now let's look at it from another viewpoint. The day of judgment will come someday, and we accept that if we believe the Bible. It's right here in the Bible. But now what will be the standard of judgment when that day comes? By what shall we be judged? Are we going to be judged by God's love for us? No, there's not anything wrong with that. No, he's not on trial. Not anything wrong with God's love. Are we going to be judged by God's grace that he has extended to mankind? No, there isn't anything wrong with that. What are we going to be judged by? Here we have the answer, Revelation 20 and verse 12. I saw the dead, the small, and the great stand before God, and the books were opened, 
And each one was judged out of the things that were written here in the books according to his works. Now there's the standard of judgment. It will be according to the book, and it will be according to the works of man, what man has done. It will be according to the word of God. Jesus once said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So we're not going to be judged by God's love toward us. We're not going to be judged by God's grace extended to man. We're going to be judged by what God's grace has given the world, which is the teaching. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us. Here is the teaching, the Holy Bible, and the book will be open. And we'll be judged according to what's found in it. So I believe that some are going down too far the other way, too far the other way. Now, it's wonderful that God loves us and wants us to be saved. And you know, Jesus has said in Revelation 3 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Now, that door is open from the inside. That latch is on the inside. And if Jesus gets into your heart and life, you're going to have to open the door, open it from within. I stand at the door and knock. And he that opens the door, then I will come in and sup with him and he with me. That's the will of God. We can't eliminate man's part in salvation. We can't do that. That's the old Calvinistic doctrine that man has nothing to do with it. We can't eliminate man's part. And as I mentioned in the service this morning, if we get off on that trend and that becomes our theme, we'll empty church buildings everywhere because there would be no point at all in people attending. We must get back to teaching what people must do in cooperation with the will of God. Now it's wonderful that God has made the plan of salvation so simple and so easy for us so that it's not hard for us to obey. He has given five little simple steps for us to take. Five, if you don't like the word step, say spiritual exercise. Five steps. But that word step, though, is a good word. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. That's what it says, 1 Peter 2.21, that is a biblical expression, so don't find fault with that. So it's all right to say steps. Five sample steps. This last February, the Big Brotherhood meeting must have had 3,500 people present. And the speaker got up and ridiculed and made fun of what he called the five steppers. That's right. 
ridiculed and made fun of what he called the five steppers. Now, what are the steps? Well, we're to be taught, Matthew 28 and verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations. The very first thing in order for a person to get into Christ is to be taught Christianity is a teaching religion. It's something that we understand. Go teach. And the second step, of course, is for us to believe. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Romans 10 and verse 10, believe unto. And then in Acts 11 and verse 18, it says, repent unto. For God hath granted unto the Gentiles repentance unto life. And then in Romans 10 and 10, it says, we confess unto. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And then in Galatians 3 and 27, it says, baptized into Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ did put on Christ. So we understand unto and we believe unto, we repent unto and we confess unto, and we're baptized into. One says, now hold on, Brownlow. Don't you know that those two English prepositions unto and into have been translated from the same, exactly the same Greek preposition in the Bible. Oh, yes, I know that. I know that. I know a little Greek also. He runs a tailor shop downtown. And incidentally, that's more Greek than these fellows know who are always talking about this matter. But it's still a good translation. Well, why would it be a good translation since both of these words, unto, into, come from the same Greek preposition? Well, the last one would be the one that would be translated into. Now, you might take step unto, 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 unto this building, but if you keep going unto this building, you're going to finally take the last step, and that will be into. And now these steps, which one is the last one? It's baptism. Therefore, the translators did a good work, and they did it the right way when they translated these other passages, unto, 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 and then when they came to baptism, they translated that into. Translated into Christ. So we're baptized into Christ. And I submit to you tonight, the very fact that we're baptized into Christ means that we have not been in Christ prior to baptism. We would have to be out of Christ to be baptized into Christ. And the very fact that we have to be taught and believe and repent and confess in order for baptism to be valid and to be scriptural in the sight of God, that's positive proof that we do not believe in water salvation. If just water alone would do it, then we wouldn't have to have the understanding and the believing and the repenting and the confessing. But baptism consists of more than water. People have to understand. They have to believe. They have to repent. They have to confess. And then there is the final step, baptized into Christ. We don't believe in water salvation. Now, some of my friends do, and I say this as kindly and as politely as I know. But you take a baby. It can't be taught. It can't believe. It can't repent. It can't confess. 
And now if you put some water on it and it's been blessed, then what did it? It'd be water salvation, water blessing. They believe in it, I don't. And some of the very people who practice water salvation will actually indict us as believing in it when we don't. We don't believe in water salvation. So in order for baptism to be effective and valid, it's